Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you bring your Bible tonight? That's all three of you did? Oh, good. You hold it up. Love that. Oh, you're holding up your little phone, iPads. You technological junkies, you. Well, turn them on or and turn off your Facebook and social networking on those puppies, if you don't mind. Open your Bibles or your iPads to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we finish that out tonight and go into chapter 17. And don't say, oh yeah, sure we will. <laughs> say, sure, we will. Father, we do delight anytime we hear a word from you to us. Sometimes it comes early in the morning when we open our Bibles and it's just you and ourselves. We're in our daily reading and a principle comes up, a truth comes up, and it's like an arrow to the heart or water to a part soul. At other times... It's in a setting like this, where we have come for the purpose of worshiping you. And the real essence of worship is our willingness in Bible study to listen to your voice. We submit ourselves in this time to the word of God. And you speak to us that way. Other times we're listening to a radio broadcast or a friend who will counsel us. Sometimes it's a still, small voice. You just speak to our hearts. But we pray, Lord, you would give us fresh direction, answering questions, confirming ideas, and helping us on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite quotes is by a theologian named Graham Scroggie, who said this, Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. That is, there is a scarlet thread that runs throughout the scriptures from the first book of Genesis to the last book of Revelation. No matter how you look at it, no matter where you cut it, you will find prominently displayed or predicted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. For example, we read about the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis and how Abraham took his son Isaac to a mountain to sacrifice him, Mount Moriah. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And we discover the first time the word love is used, it's used in the context of a father sacrificing his son on a mountain, Mount Moriah, which interestingly enough was the mountain that Jesus was crucified upon. That scarlet thread shows up. We move to the next book and we read about Moses who lifted up a serpent in the wilderness on a pole and how people in the camp of Israel looked at that serpent and God said, if you just believe and you look by faith, it's going to heal you. And Jesus tied that in, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We go several more books to the right, and we come to the life and writings of King David. And David wrote Psalm 22, a vivid description of crucifixion hundreds of years before it was even invented. In fact, the opening line of Psalm 22 or one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so when we hear Jesus saying that, if we've been Bible students, we go, that sounds like what David wrote. Indeed. Then we come to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke about the 50, in in the 53rd chapter about the suffering servant saying, Who has believed our report? 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. And so we turn from book to book and chapter to chapter, and we see that scarlet thread running through it. We understand a very crucial principle in this, that the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, was paramount at the top of the list when it came to what was important to God and to Jesus. So much so that in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That God had it on His heart, in His mind, for His purpose, that His Son would come and become the sacrificial Lamb for the sins of all the world. And so we see this this highlighting of the sacrifice, this importance. I call it the billboard of eternity. Jesus Christ's cross is on the billboard of eternity. If we were to examine how much verbal real estate occupies the four Gospels and the events that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about Jesus Christ, we would discover something monumental. That one-third of all the events that these four men record about the life of Jesus occur in the last week of Jesus' life upon the earth. Hmm. Think of it this way. In those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... There are four chapters, only four chapters, that give us information about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Four chapters only deal with 30 years, childhood and everything else. Only four even speak about those events. Whereas, 85 chapters focus on the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. That is His public ministry. Of those 85 chapters, 29 deal with the final week of Jesus Christ. And out of those 29, 13 deal with the last day of His life. So in totality, 579 verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written about the final day of Jesus upon the earth, His crucifixion. So we see what is important, what occupies the priority list. For Jesus. And I bring that up for a couple of reasons. We begin tonight with Christ foretelling his death in no uncertain, no ambiguous terms, just straight up. And it should be a lesson to us as a fellowship, to any who go to other fellowships, and especially if there are any clergy listening tonight. Because there is a growing tendency to be ashamed of the cross in churches, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be more cool, hip, relevant. Taking songs out of the liturgy that deal with the blood, because after all, nobody wants to sing about a bloody religion. Let's talk about social issues. Let's talk about personal fulfillment. Let's talk about your best life now. Instead of taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. If you really want a popular ministry, you have to exclude the cross. And include what what makes people feel good about themselves. Now with those words, let's begin in verse 21 and see what Jesus focused on. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. 
Boy, I'm sure Jesus was so lucky to have Peter around to protect him from the big bad wolf. And that's what Peter is trying to do, protect him from the cross. Now you will notice that Peter is objecting, yes? But Peter is only hearing the negative. He's only hearing the bad stuff. He's not hearing the whole story. Jesus said, it's going to be bad. They're going to beat me up. I'm going to die and be raised from the dead. The third day, right over his head. Did not even think of that. Did not even focus on that. Like so many people, he focuses on the black dot on the white sheet. Instead of saying, boy, there's a whole lot of white sheep besides that black dot. It's like, look at that black dot. And that's all you look at. And there are some people who only focus on the dot, on the death, on the suffering, on the bad stuff. Oh, woe is me. Why is my life so miserable? Neglecting all of the many blessings for which we all ought to be thankful. Sometimes we get pretty down and depressed and mopey. Ever met a mopey Christian? The reason Christians get mopey is because they haven't heard the word. That is, they haven't heard the whole story. They only get a portion of it. They don't hear the whole thing, the the rest of the story, like our radio personality used to say. Peter didn't hear the whole story. He didn't go, oh yeah, that's bad, oh yeah, that's bad. Oh wow, now that, raised from the dead, that's so cool. He just said, far be it from you, Lord. Peter wants to protect Jesus. Now why is that? I know we're kind of making fun of Peter, but on the other hand, I understand the guy. All he knew from his upbringing, his only expectation he ever learned for the Messiah who was coming, that his teachers, his elders, his rabbis taught him, is that it would be a conquering Messiah. A Messiah who wouldn't suffer. A Messiah who would rule and reign and be glorious and, and overthrow the, the enemies who were oppressing Israel and set up Jerusalem and Israel, Mount Zion, over all the nations. That's what he expected. So when Jesus said, Oh, by the way, Peter, you just confessed that I was the Christ. I want you to know what that means. I'm the Christ. You call me the Messiah. But the truth is, Peter, you can't worship me as Messiah until you know what the Messiah is. And the Messiah is not what you think it is. It's not who you think it is. And so Jesus begins to focus on his death, the cross, the sacrifice, the bloodshed. Why? Because at his first coming, he came to deal with sin At his second coming, he will rule and reign. So he began to tell them. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, it's my guess that Peter said this not only as a reaction, but as an expectation that the Lord would say, Yes, Peter, you got that answer right too. Just like you did the last time when I said, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And you said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bingo, you got an A on that question. And once again, Peter, you show yourself to be at the top of the class. Man, you you aced it. You're right. You're trying to protect me. Good boy. Peter probably said that and then waited for another, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Or perhaps, Peter, you are so awesome, I'm making you the first pope. (laughs) Well, let's see what Jesus said to the first pope. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me. Wow. So is Peter the pope or is he Satan? I mean, that's quite a gnarly thing to say to a dude who is following you and you think is at the the top of the pack. Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. 
First of all, why would Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Was he referring to Peter singularly and saying, Peter, you're the devil. You, you are Satan incarnate, man. No. What he was saying, in effect, is, I recognize that voice. I've heard it before. And you just go back a few years when Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan came to him. And Satan made him an offer so that Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross the hard way, the sacrificial way, the bloody way. I'll give you the world. You came for it. I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. You can have it. Don't sacrifice. Don't offer yourself. Don't go to the cross. Now Peter is saying the same philosophy. So Jesus is saying, I've heard that voice before. I recognize it. It's the voice of Satan because the philosophy that you are espousing, Peter, is a satanic philosophy that says, spare yourself. Go for the comfort, not the sacrifice. And so he rebuked him. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And that simply means um, it's pretty easy to figure out. What do men value more, sacrifice or comfort? Most people comfort. Most men run away from hardship, run away from pain, run away from sacrifice. That's humankind. We do everything we can to avoid that. And we place such a high priority on our personal comfort. And that's why Jesus said, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God would think. Peter meant well, and Peter was giving Jesus what he considered his best counsel. Peter loved Jesus. Peter followed Jesus. But was Peter's counsel good or bad? It was bad counsel. Now, I want you to remember this. Not all of the counsel you're going to receive from Christians, though it's well-meaning, is God-inspired. So be careful what you hear. Jesus even said, take heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. When you go to somebody for advice, they may give you advice that will be like a man thinks, your comfort. So, so you announce to somebody, I feel the Lord calling me as a missionary overseas. Oh, don't do that. Don't go there. You go to that country, they don't even have air conditioning. It's not comfortable. There's diseases. You could get hurt. It's dangerous. Avoid the danger. Stay close by. Well-meaning advice. It may not be God-inspired advice. Peter gave advice, but it wasn't what God inspired. And so Jesus continues to frame what just happened into a premise of truth. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You notice that in those sentences, Jesus gives to us two different approaches to life. How do you do life? What are the two approaches? To deny yourself or to put yourself first? Deny himself take up his cross. Two different approaches. Deny yourself or deny the suffering so that you can comfort yourself. Love this world. Love his kingdom. Take up his cross. Run away from his cross. Save your life for the world's sake or deny the world for his sake. Two totally different approaches he lays out here. Now, I want to say something to those of us who love evangelism. I love evangelism. I know you do. I know a lot of you bring faithfully your friends, your loved ones to church to hear the gospel. 
Um, you want them to be exposed to the truth and, and have an opportunity to come forward. A lot of times on a Wednesday or a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, people will walk forward and give their lives to Christ. I love that. It is so precious. But the danger is, they just think, I raised my hand, I shed a tear, I walked a few steps, I'm done. No, as the song would go, you've only just begun. Boy, that's an old song. I'm really dating myself. Now you grow. Now you sink your roots down deep. Now you get stamina as you find out what the Christian life is all about in your discipleship and in your growth. Because one of the worst things is to be a stunted Christian. You, you, you come to Christ and then you remain a, a pygmy believer. You don't grow. You don't eat right. You don't exercise right. You're not growing in fullness. And so you're lightweight. And when the troubles come and the tribulations come, as Jesus said in the parables, you fall away. For he asks, what profit is it if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now go back and just quickly look at that short little list. Deny himself. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you deny things for yourself. It means that you deny yourself. You deny you. You say no to you. You say yes to him. In other words... To deny yourself means I take me off the throne. I dethrone Skip. And I enthrone Christ. I deny myself. It's all about Him. Second, I take up my cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? I had somebody come up and goes, I understand it now. What it means to take up your cross? I got married. I said, are you saying your wife is your cross? Yes, I am. That's exactly right. Usually it's the other way around. The husband's the cross. Well, I would say you misunderstand the text. To take up your cross, the cross meant death. You come to an end. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. That is, You die to your own personal ambition and you find out what is the Lord's ambition and will and volition for your life. And you go with that. Boy, I was amazed coming to this verse. When I went to India, might have been the third or fourth time, I met a man who introduced himself to me and said that we had met before on my first trip to that country. I didn't recall it, but he said, well, we met. And at that time, I was a medical doctor. I was in in practice. I had just finished medical school. I was setting up my practice. He said, but you gave a message on the verses we're covering and what it meant to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the Lord and give Him your all. Follow Him with abandon. So... In hearing your message, I quit my medical practice. And I have become a missionary to northern India, where it's a lot harder to be a Christian and to share your faith. But that's where the Lord's called me today. And I'm looking for Him to say, You idiot, I shouldn't have listened to you. I gave up a nice career, but He had the biggest smile on His face. He gave up His medical practice, and He was a missionary in a persecuted area. And He said, It was the best thing ever. But he took this verse so seriously. And I remember that because I was astonished that, wow, there's a person who as soon as they heard a principle, they said, okay, that's what the Lord's calling me to do. I'm going to do that. And he sensed that was from the Lord and he did it. And he was rejoicing. Verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in His glory, or in the glory of His Father, with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
There are some people who have read those verses and say, well, that was a mistake. That never happened. These guys never stayed around long enough to see the coming of the Lord, as Jesus promised. Actually, they did. The Lord will give to them a sneak preview, if you will, of His coming kingdom. I like to call these things trailers. That's what they call them in the movie industry. You know when you go to a movie theater and before the movie they show you the trailers? Those little three, four, five minute snippets of the movie? Typically that's, if you've seen that, you've seen the movie. I love the trailer. It's my favorite part. No joke. Because they take the highlights of the movie and they show you a preview of coming attractions. Jesus promises that some of these men standing there will get a preview of coming attractions. You say, well, when did that ever happen? Thank you for asking. That happened in the very next couple verses, chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. Metamorpho is the word, metamorphosis. Transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. First of all, if you want to place where this happened, this high mountain, traditionally, typically, people will say it's Mount Tabor. Now, unless you've been to Israel, you're going, okay, it's just, you just set a mountain. I don't know what that is. It could be Sandia for all I know. Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is a prominent hill in the eastern side of the Jezreel Valley. It's where De, uh, 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 um, uh, Deborah and Barak fought against Sisera. Remember in the book of Judges? That's Mount Tabor. So because that's a prominent hill in the Galilee region, the eastern side of the Jezreel Valley, that is the traditional place. So... On some tours you go to Israel, not ours, but the tour bus will go by Mount Tabor, point up to it and say, that's where the transfiguration of Jesus Christ took place. The hill is about 1,900 feet above the floor of the valley. But I never bought that. I never believed that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that at that time, the time of Jesus, there was an armed fortress on top of Mount Tabor with a castle. So it's highly unlikely that Jesus would would go near there. He couldn't get up there. Number two, our Lord was with His disciples. Do you remember where, when we were in chapter 16, it says He took them to Caesarea Philippi? Remember that? The mountain that is right next to Caesarea Philippi is indeed a high mountain. In fact, it is the highest mountain in the Middle East. It's Mount Hermon. But um, so that you don't get that confused with Hermon Munster, um, we should pronounce it the correct way as the Jewish people say, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,400 feet above sea level. In some places in the Jordan Valley, 11,000 feet below the low part of the Jordan Valley. So it's a very high mountain. I mean, it's, it's so high that it, it houses snow in the wintertime and you can go skiing up there. Did you know you can go skiing in Israel? You can go surfing and skiing or snowboarding. So this high mountain is probably where Jesus took his disciples, not necessarily to the top, just up on the slopes. And this event happened there. Now it says again in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. The Greek word, metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis. When you think of a metamorphosis, you think of a what? A butterfly, a caterpillar spinning a cocoon, crawling inside, and breaking forth out of the cocoon into a beautiful butterfly. Jesus was metamorphosed before them. That is, it wasn't just this appearance that he had, but he changed form is the idea. Think of it this way. 
the Son of God was breaking out of the cocoon of the Son of Man. Many scholars believe that what the disciples saw was Jesus' post-resurrection body that he changed into for this event. A preview of coming attraction, Jesus in his glory. Now later on, when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John will see a vision of the glorified Jesus. And it's similar. His head and his hair, John says, were white like wool, as white as snow. His countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. This bright, glorious appearing of Christ. Okay, now get this. Later on, after Jesus comes, after the thousand-year reign, after the destruction of the earth and the heavens, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, there's a new capital city called the New Jerusalem. And it says, And there was no sun and no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the Lord Himself is the light, and the Lamb is the light thereof. God Himself, Jesus Christ, will shine in heaven so that in the New Jerusalem, no electric bills, no need of a sun or a moon, just the glory and the radiance of Christ will light that place. So what these disciples were essentially in was a time tunnel. They're being pushed all the way forward and seeing the coming of the Lord, this post-resurrection glory of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1 of Revelation and the last part of the book of Revelation. They were able to see it, and so the promise was fulfilled. Some of you won't taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His glory. Here He is in His glory. Now with Him are two people, Moses and Elijah. Why those guys? I mean, there's a lot of great people in the Old Testament to show up with. Abraham, the father of faith. Joseph, also a man of great integrity and faith. Daniel, David. Why Moses and why Elijah? Well, Moses was probably the greatest person to the Jewish people. He was the lawgiver, the man who came and gave their covenant to them, the covenant of the law. So he represented the law. Elijah was considered to be the greatest prophet. So he represented the prophet. So Jesus is being testified to by the law and by the prophets. Moreover, not only did Moses give the law and was he the lawgiver of Israel, but he was a Messiah-like individual because he made a prediction of the Messiah, saying, Another prophet will come from among your own people, just like I am. Him you will heed. Him you will listen to. Him you will follow. He predicted the coming of the Messiah. Elijah brought Israel, that was apostate, following other gods, back to the Lord. And Elijah was the predicted forerunner of the Messiah. Am I right? Malachi chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament, last few verses, God says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's why to this day the Jews put an open door at the Passover. They open a door, they crack it open, and they leave an empty seat in case Elijah would come. Because if Elijah comes, Messiah is not far away. Not only that, but get this. Both Moses and Elijah had a glorious vision on a high mountain. Moses was on Mount Sinai and had a glorious experience with the Lord. Elijah was on Mount Horeb, which is part of Mount Sinai, essentially the same mountain, and had that wonderful experience of the wind and the fire and the still small voice of the Lord. Wonderful experience. Both Moses and Elijah were rejected by Israel at a specific time in their ministry. So it fits. He came with Moses and with Elijah. 
Now, I want to tie in something because I did mention it before, but I think some have forgotten and some had questions afterwards. When Moses died, he had a weird death. He didn't make it into the promised land. His death is recorded and we don't know where his burial place is to that this day exactly. We know the area it was. And then when it comes to Elijah the prophet, Elijah never did die. Yet it says it's appointed unto man, every man wants to die. He didn't die. He was taken up in a chariot into heaven, just assumed, like raptured into heaven. Now I'm going to read this odd verse to you. Maybe you've heard of it before in the book of Jude. Listen to this. This is the book of Jude. There's only one chapter. It's verse 9. Listen to what the writer says. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil about the body of Moses... Isn't that wild? Dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Why would Michael and Satan argue about a dead body? In fact, why would God dispatch Michael to do that? Why would God care about a dead body? Unless, just a possibility, unless God had future plans for that body. He didn't want to desecrate it. It was to be protected. And then again, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. Jesus said, Elijah's coming back. He says, verily, Elijah will come again. So Malachi predicted it, and Jesus even predicted it. So when do Moses and Elijah come? My belief, Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, there are two witnesses that come for the nation of Israel. And their ministry will be broadcast around the world. What's interesting about the two witnesses is what they can do miraculously. They have the power to stop the rain from heaven. That sounds a lot like Elijah who stopped the rain for three and a half years. And to turn the water into blood. Boy, that sounds a lot like Moses who did that in Egypt. So their signature miracles sound a lot like Moses and Elijah. So what I believe we see happening is Jesus meeting with Moses and Elijah, showing the disciples a preview of what's coming as Moses and Elijah in the tribulation period will come and be a witness to Israel and to the world. And they're speaking about the coming kingdom. Verse 4, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, I just love Peter. I love this guy. Lord, it's good for us to be here. I, I, I hear that and I go, duh, what was your first clue? If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter was a man of action. Something cool happened. He thought, I want to be busy. I want to build something cool. But it was more than that. It wasn't that he was just building a shrine. Let me explain to you what I think is happening. He wants to build tabernacles. Tabernacles, there was a feast every year in the fall called the Feast of Tabernacles, where Israel would build these little booths, little lean-tos, little shacks. They, they would camp outside for a week. They were commemorating that God was faithful to their forefathers in the wilderness, in the desert. And, and they anticipated the coming kingdom in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now get this. According to most New Testament chronographers, those who study the chronology of the New Testament, they tell us that the Passover at which Jesus will be crucified was six months away. And that this event happened in the month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar, which would be in the, the fall time, during the Feast of Tabernacles. So in seeing Moses and Elijah, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Peter is thinking of the kingdom age. 
You say, well, why is he thinking of the kingdom age? Just because they did that every year, they commemorated the past and they thought of the future? More than that. The prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, in chapter 12 of his prophecy, talks about nations in the end times coming against Jerusalem. But the people who survive that and go into the kingdom age after that huge confrontation in the Middle East... It says that they will go into the kingdom and celebrate year by year the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll go up to Jerusalem and worship the Lord, their king, year by year, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. So just know that. Remember that. In the thousand-year millennial kingdom, get ready for going to Jerusalem. You go, boy, I've always wanted to go to Israel. Great. If you've never been able to afford it, you'll go every year. And you'll celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. How cool will that be? Now, I do recommend going to Israel first because then you can compare it. You know, you go, boy, I remember when that was there and boy, it's not there anymore. It looks a lot better now. And remember when that? Yeah. So anyway, uh, just a pitch for going to Israel. But here's what Peter is saying, I believe. Lord, this is perfect. You're glowing. You're glorified. We see you in your glory. There's Moses, the lawgiver. There's Elijah, the forerunner, who's supposed to come before the Messiah comes. He's here. We're seeing Moses and Elijah. So don't go to the cross. Once again, set up your kingdom. Let me make three tabernacles celebrating the Messianic kingdom right now. Let's set it up right now. That's his suggestion, the setting up of the kingdom. (laughs) While he's making this suggestion, notice God the Father interrupts him. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In other words, as it says in the Greek, zip it, Peter. Don't talk, but listen. To my son. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I don't blame Peter for making this suggestion. I really don't. If you would see this, if I would see this, if we could have been there to behold this incredible miraculous apparition. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, who wouldn't want to stay right there? Who wouldn't want to make this a, a permanent thing? This looks like the kingdom. Bring it on. But Peter makes two mistakes. Mistake number one, he wants to stay up on the mountain when God wants him to go back down in the valley. It's always the problem of going on a on a retreat. You go up to the mountains, you go up to Glorietta, it's in the pine trees, it's so awesome. You feel the tug and the presence and the ministry of the Lord, but then you have to go back down Sunday afternoon and go to work Monday back in the valley. And so often we just want to live in that moment, that glorious moment when the Lord wants us to use what we learned in that moment and transfer it into the valley moments. The reality. The second mistake Peter made, and probably the most profound, certainly the most profound, is in saying, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses and Elijah. He's putting Moses and Elijah on the same par as Jesus. Basically saying, all three of you are important, all three of you the same, all three of you the same level. And so God says, "Uh, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter had listened to Moses and Elijah his whole life. Listened to the law and the prophets. He'd been reading them. He knew the stories about it. He'd been listening to the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, his whole life. Now the Messiah comes, clearly superior to Moses, clearly superior to the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at different times and in different ways has revealed himself to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his only Son. God spoke in a lot of different ways, but now God is speaking through Jesus. 
Same message here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, as they came down from the mountain, okay, stop right there. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter, or quickly find on your iPhone or iPad Second Peter, chapter one. Why am I doing this? Because Peter talks about this experience several years later. It's his own testimony, his own words, his own interpretation and lessons. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Moreover, I, uh, verse 15, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For... He received from God the Father honor and glory. That's what he learned that day. He received from the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, verse 19, we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So there's Peter's own testimony of God honoring his son and placing superiority on his son over Moses and Elijah. Now notice something about what we read in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter, James, and John instantly recognized Moses and Elijah. They didn't have to guess. Who are those guys? After all, they'd been dead hundreds of years. They didn't see them before in the flesh. And yet, in this glorious time tunnel, they were able to recognize them. You know, I don't think they were wearing name tags. Hello, my name is Moses. There was no introduction. Uh, Moses, Peter, Peter, Moses, Elijah, Peter. It's just they recognized him. Sometimes I get asked the question when we're in heaven, will we recognize each other? If we're going to be glorified and our bodies resurrected, will we recognize? Are you kidding? Well, will we know each other in heaven? I think we won't know each other until we get to heaven. That's when we'll really know each other. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, will we recognize each other in heaven? His answer was classic. He goes, do you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are on earth? (laughs) It's a great answer. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, you will know even as you are known, as 1 Corinthians tells us. So that's Moses and Elijah pairing with Jesus. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 17. Let's hurry. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. No use to make a scene of it and cause confusion. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things, referring to Malachi 4, the promise made there. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. You understand their struggle, don't you? So if the, if the scribes and rabbis say Elijah is coming, and we just saw Elijah, then why does the Messiah, you, have to die? I don't get the death part of it. You keep bringing up the fact that you're going to die, and we just saw this glorious apparition and Elijah. So if Elijah is going to come before the Messiah, and we just saw Elijah, and you're the Messiah, could you, like, append what you just said? Because it doesn't make sense to us. They're trying to deal with it. They, that's not what they've been brought up to believe. Now, they understood Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. In a sense, he fulfilled 
Elijah, as we talked about back in chapter 10 and 11 when we studied that. The prophecy was that Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, Behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. Now, in a sense, John the Baptist, in a sense, fulfilled that. He was an Elijah-like forerunner, as was prophesied at John the Baptist's birth. Remember that? He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John the Baptist succeeded in turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. He was successful in moving many people in the nation back to the Lord and reconciled in their relationships, but not totally. Many were baptized at the Jordan River, but, but John the Baptist suffered, was rejected, and died. And so... The suffering forerunner, John the Baptist, is followed by the suffering Messiah, Jesus Christ. In the end times, the real deal, Elijah, will come and usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Elijah is coming. That's true. That's going to happen, Jesus said. But in a sense, if you can receive it, he's already come. And they go, oh, I get it. He means John the Baptist. That this whole forerunner thing comes in two phases. One... J the B, John the Baptist, before Jesus' death, and then Elijah, the real deal prophet, in the end times. Make sense? Verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. If you have a King James, it says... Anybody have an old King James? It says lunatic, right? Lord, help my son. He's a lunatic. I think a lot of fathers would say that about their son from time to time. It's translated epileptic here, but the original term is lunatic. Now, when you hear the word luna, if you speak Spanish, what does it sound like? Moon. Because the word lunatic literally comes from a word that means moonstruck. And the belief system in ancient times is that the moon could make a person crazy. If you stared at the moon too long, you become a lunatic. You become... And and so what they do, they would take certain neurological diseases and say, well, he has that because he was influenced by the moon. He's a lunatic. They didn't understand it. That's an old way of saying epilepsy. So he brings his son, whom he blames on the heavens, the zodiac, the stars, the moon. He's an epileptic. That's how it's translated in the newer translations. And he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cast him out or cure him. Excuse me. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. So here we have an instance where a physical ailment was brought on by a spiritual condition of a young boy being demon-possessed. Jesus said to them, when they said, Why couldn't we cast him out? Verse 19, he said to them, Because of your unbelief. For if you had faith as a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out by prayer, except by prayer and by fasting. If you think back a few chapters, around chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out and gave them power to heal, power over unclean spirits, to deliver people from demons. They had the power. They could exercise the power. Yet, here, it seems like their faith had been sagging a little bit. It was less than it ought to be. They saw great things, but they're at a point where perhaps they were trusting in the power rather than in the source that it's because of the commission of the Lord. 
And so they ask him, why couldn't we do it? And he says, because of your unbelief. Then he gives to them something that we don't understand as much as original hearers would understand because the rabbis used to talk about mustard seed faith. That is something that is small but becomes big. And the moving of a mountain was also an axiomatic phrase. It was a figure of speech. It meant to overcome a difficulty. It's in many ancient writings. So I don't want you to think that Jesus is saying you can actually go up to the Sandia Mountains if you really believe and you could move it from that side. Maybe you just want a better afternoon that's a little bit cooler and move it to the west side. He wouldn't give you that power. It would be senseless and pointless for you to move the geography around. Also, we know it doesn't mean that because there's no incident where Jesus himself said, I don't like that mountain there. It looks better over here. Or the disciples doing it or anybody throughout history doing it. So it was a figure of speech that human difficulties can be overcome. In this case, demon possession, sickness, by the power of faith in Jesus. That something small, like their faith, which is wavering, can become big like a mustard seed. It can grow and overcome impossibilities, so-called, and difficulties. This verse, along with others, have been hijacked by the faith movement. He said, if you have enough faith, you just confess it and you just speak it out loud and you'll get whatever it is. Nonsense. That's faith in faith. And so many sermons, it's faith in positive thinking and faith in, in verbal confession and said faith instead of faith in Christ and being connected to that source. He says, however, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Some people see that as not in the original. So I'll, I'll even skip making comment on that. I do want to finish the next couple of verses so we can say we did. So while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. There it is again, going back to the cross. That's his focus. And they will kill him. And the third day, he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They are just like us. Somebody we know and love dies and goes to heaven. We become exceedingly sorrowful. It's understandable because we'll miss them. But for that person who loved Jesus and is in the presence of Jesus and is not suffering, but is at total peace, and that is our ultimate destination? Are you nuts? What if instead saying he died and he went to heaven, boo-hoo, we said, i got to tell you something that happened to your son or your friend or your husband or your wife. You won't see them for many years. Some relative from out of nowhere just gave them 200 billion gazillion dollars. And they're living on an island in the Caribbean. And they're developed a mission base base from which they're going to broadcast and send missionaries all over the world. They're living in the lap of luxury. They're living at ease and they're living a meaningful life the rest of their existence. Now, I know it's weird and you won't see them for a long time. Boy, if, if, if somebody said that, that my son was now in that place serving the Lord and set up in total peace, I would go, oh, I'm so bummed out for him. Okay, so that person has left earth and gone to heaven. And see, once again, they're hearing the death part, but not the raise the third day. They're just exceedingly sorrowful. Sometimes our sorrow is exceedingly sorrowful. You can be sorrowful, but not exceedingly sorrowful. Sorrowful is biblical. Paul talked about mourning and sorrowing, but we do it differently from those who have no hope. So there's hopeful mourning, and then there's hopeless mourning. A Christian has hopeful mourning. They cry because I'm going to miss that person, but I'm so stoked for that person. They're in glory. Let's have a party. 
Let's comfort each other in the loss, but let's celebrate the life that has not ceased. That person is now very much alive. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. Before he could say anything, he said, "Um, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom of taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Do you think kings will tax their own kids to pay for the kingdom? Are you kidding? Peter said to them, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you have opened its mouth, get this, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Wouldn't you love that to happen around (laughs) April 15th? Well, you can see Jesus was a handy guy to have around for Peter. Man, a temple tax, and I find a fish. Just the right amount of money into it. Some great lessons in that. We finish the chapter. We'll remark on a few of those salient lessons next time. Father, we do thank you that you've given to us the Holy Spirit. You've given to us the resident truth teacher that lives inside of us, that confirms for us the Scripture, the Word of God, so that we're led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Lord, I thank You for my brothers and sisters who come out to go plow through the Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we expound the truth. Your word says that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And I pray that you would reward those who are seeking you by coming out to worship. And to worship by applying their, the word to their lives. I pray you'd strengthen. I pray you'd direct each person. And you would be the satisfier of each soul. We pray, Father, for your comfort, especially this week as we have lost a dear brother on our staff, Les Palmer. Our hearts break. We are sorrowful. We mourn his loss. There's a huge vacancy because of his powerful ministry to us. But our sorrow is not excessive because there's hope mingled in that sorrow we're hopeful his was a life well lived he is in the father's house he is beholding your glory what was seen momentarily by three disciples on that mountain and thank you Lord for the hope he lived with and how many he led to Christ Father, we pray that our lives would be well-lived. That we would deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after you. I pray that rather than existing, rather than just bringing home money to buy food, and putting clothes on our body, and just existing, that we would really be living And true life comes the very opposite way the world tells us it comes. It's not by promoting ourselves. It's by denying self. It's not by running away from the cross, but by taking it up. It's not by trying to save our life for the world's sake. It's by losing our life for your sake. Would you show us individually what that means and how it's to be applied? That at the end of our life, we can say, 
I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. May we live in such a way that we hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And help us, Lord, to not neglect such times as this, the fellowshipping of ourselves, the mingling of ourselves together, the assembly of the saints, studying the scriptures together. May this become our habit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.